right. Well, welcome back to Retro Time Podcast, Eric. Hey, man. What's up? Oh, it, it's, uh, oh, what's up? Everything's up. It's all up. Um, Thumbs down. Everything's Thumbs up. up. It's just some down. I don't know, man. I'm, I, I don't think I'm losing my mind. <laughs> what's up? What's down? Honest. Who knows? I think I'm losing my mind, and it's uh, coronavirus's fault. Yeah. I always blame it. Always, I've been blaming you know coronavirus what? for years, but people weren't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> They're jerks. Yeah. Now they will. I bet they, now they you will. You know what they'll do See, next now time? now they will. You know what they will next time? They'll pay attention. That's right. I promise. I will, at least. Oh, man. All right. So here's what we were going to talk about today. Um, what we, Derek and I, we, had, we actually recorded a few uh, episodes before what you guys uh, out there um, know as our first episode. Um, and we ended up, um, what did we, we ended up not, not releasing them because they were, you know, they weren't viable, I guess. So we, uh, we did our first episode, um, on the MVP concept of what an MVP and how people tend to, um, not focus on the right thing when they do an MVP. Uh, you know, a lot of times software engineers, when you talk to them about MVP or product teams in general, um, they'll think, you know, the minimum is what is the minimum that I can do instead of what is the minimum that's viable for my users. Um, and so we wanted to redo that episode today as kind of a redux. Uh, and we, I think we're going to release that episode as a, as a little retro bite bonus episode. Um, but then we thought, you know what, there's a million podcasts already talking about this idea. What are we going to say that's really a lot different? So we, we kind of changed it up a little bit, Derek, and we have a new idea. You want to you talk about that? I'll this lay new it on idea? You. Yeah, yeah lay I'll lay it on you. you. I'll lay it on you. So we were thinking about this idea of what is the underlying problem with the MVP? Why do people tend to make mistakes when implementing an MVP? And I kind of thought about it a little bit we Jeremy and I talked about it and um, oddly enough I had a conversation with my wife uh, the other night and we were we were talking about something related to the virus of uh, which we're all going through right now and it had to do with uh, she was she was reading something by a woman named Glennon Doyle um, who has a, a blog called Momastry, momastry m-o-m-a-s-t-r-y mom and she was presenting an idea where basically we shouldn't be hiding this concept of the virus from our kids. And she had this, uh, this phrase that she uses, we can do hard things. In the context of this virus, it kind of meant we can do hard things. Let your children experience this a little bit because it's going to grow their character. Like your kids can do hard things. Don't, don't try to... Um like keep your kids from experiencing hardship? Is that what she's trying to say? I think so. I think so. Okay. And I didn't dig deeply into it. So I'm at the level of just surface level understanding this concept. And then I started to think about what that feels like to be on the surface level of understanding a concept, potentially really complex. Because this is yeah. not a dumb woman. This is a very smart woman. She has a lot of influence. She has a lot of people who follow her. And I was just fascinated mm-hmm. by... Um, this little phrase, we can do hard things. And then I started to think about what's the complex part of that phrase? And it's the word hard. Hard can be defined in any way you want it to be. You can define it yourself. You can have someone describe it, write it down, bullet point it. But that's that's the complex thing. And just by hearing the phrase, I can go live the phrase. 
but I will live it in my own way, and I may miss the context as to which this woman, Glennon Doyle, intended it to be lived. So that's kind of the idea behind where I was going with this, this, uh, this concept. It's that these phrases, like, we can do hard things, or minimum viable product, sound right. incredibly simple, but in the, in the interweavings of the words of the phrase is incredible complexity. It requires a lot of study and sometimes deep introspection uh, into mm-hmm. how you would, imp- you would uh, implement the, the, the idea in your own life or your own project. So that's kind of where it came from. So, um, so let's talk a little bit then about how, because it, it seems like this this affected you quite a bit, right? What, um, and and we brought it up. We're trying to think about, you know, what do we, how do we, how do we kind of twist uh, MVP a little bit, or or flip the the idea of MVP a little bit? And we we were talking about this. We came with this idea of, um, you know, urgency versus panic, and a lot of times we find that companies that, that want to do really great things, they decide they want to do this MVP, they end up doing it because they're in panic mode, right? They're in danger. Um, something is wrong and we have to fix it immediately. This idea of a panic, trying to work inside of a panic. And what we kind of came up with was this idea that you can't really be effective or your MVP is going to be uh, run the risk of being ineffective if you try to wait until you're already in a panic mode to do an MVP, right? Um, you should really be trying to do your MVP with a sense of urgency, but not a sense of panic. Yeah, that's, 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 that's where we were rolling with it. And I think yeah. we, 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 the way we dove into it was we first, we first had this conversation about how do companies do great things? Do they do great things because they're in an incredible panic? Or do they do great things because they have a sense of urgency within the group to go accomplish this task? And there are a couple ways to look at this. So there are uh, outside induced panics mm-hmm. that you don't control. So you didn't create the panic. Um, and this is something we actually, we didn't dive into uh, uh, before this podcast, but I'm going to, before before the discussion of this podcast, but I'm going to dive into it right now because why not? Go what else it. are we doing? Yeah, why not? Um, so all day. yeah, yeah, this is for you guys out there. <laughs> so, um, so the idea is that let's say you're in a war or you're in a, I don't know, a pandemic, not that that would ever happen, but you know, let's say yeah, that would happen. It's pretty unlikely, Derek. Yeah, it's unlikely. So, um, let's say you're in a pandemic. Everything you do is within the context of a larger panic, but you don't have to operate as if oh, I see. your group is panicked to get to the end goal internally. So right. it's sort of, um, you, so you, you don't want to cut corners, essentially. Yeah. I see, okay. So basically what you're saying, you can operate in a panicked environment externally, perhaps, but you yourself cannot have a sense of panic. And I think, yes, yes, and I think that's what it is. So the CEO of your company, the president of your country, the, the, the governor of your state, they'll always be panicked about the thing that's the most important. I mean, if they're mm-hmm. a good leader, they'll understand how to tell you they're panicked, but they'll, they're going to be, they're going to say, this is the most important thing. We need it done as quickly as possible, ASAP. When mm. you go and try to build out this concept, being realistic about how you approach it. If you approach it and tell your team, 
all right, guys, um, we get, we're freaking out, man. Like everybody's freaking out. We got to get this done as quickly as possible. We're going to do MVP because I read it on a pamphlet on the way here um mvp <laughs> I, I forget, a book yeah i forget what even the words mean it just sounds rad because i'm when i uh, uh there was an mvp of some basketball league i was watching last week so <laughs> let's do it man and you freak out um without deeply understanding it um right you can you can uh go down the wrong road right so yeah and i think that's that's the thing to because minimum and viable right in minimum viable product like just like hard in your example, Glenn and Dole, are loaded terms. They're very complex terms, right? What right. is minimum? What is viable? And how do you understand or take the time to analyze what really is minimum and what really is viable when you are in a panicked mode? Right. So in in this case, we say urgency versus panic. How do you take the time to do the proper investigation, do the due diligence, do the research, understand your users, right? Understand what really is viable for them if you're in a panic. You're probably going to skip some steps. You're probably going to be nervous. You know, you're, you're, you're probably going to like forget things. You're going to miss things. Um, and if you're missing things, you cannot with great certainty uh, guarantee that you are doing the minimum and that you are doing the viable thing, right? Because a lot of times, I mean, this is what we talked about in that in that previous uh, sort of retrobite episode of this. Um, when people think minimum, they think minimum for them. Like, what is the minimum I can do, right? I don't need to build a whole thing. I only need to build a tiny thing as a software developer, right? But that isn't necessarily viable. And when it's not viable, it's not, it's too minimum, <laughs> Um, and so when you approach it with a sense of urgency, it is urgent, it is important, but it is not panicked and urgent and important are certainly different from panicked because you will take the time to do your thing. It doesn't have to be done tomorrow. Um, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, immediate life. It might not be life and death perhaps. Um, but it, it is a sense of, uh, urgency. I need to do this. It's important. I need to get it right. And I will take the time to do it. Um, do it correctly, right? Right. Yeah. So, you what know, are some examples? We have some examples of these. Uh, well, we have any examples, your, uh, but we, I also have a, a quick analogy for you. Um, give me an analogy. Throw, throw that out there. Uh, so, right. uh, let me kick. Let me kick an analogy out there. So, when you were in high school, um, before, like the night before a test, a big test, um, were you cramming? Uh, and trying to trying to just like remember all the terms and all the formulas right before oh the night of the test. I was the worst student. I'm not oh, gonna let me tell I, you, I barely, I barely, <laughs> barely passed high school. <laughs> let term. me tell you, let me tell you, I wasn't a terrible student, uh, but I did this constantly, and I thought that in my head I was like, if I don't study in a panic, then I won't retain the information because it was so, it, it was so like all over the place mm -hmm. a lot of times because sometimes it was it was history or it was um math concepts not not thinking like i should have with that math concepts actually build on each other and they get better with practice but instead thinking that if i just cram it all into my head at the end in a panic then that'd be yeah. the best way for me to learn this information now what happens when the the sat comes or the act wherever you are you're mm -hmm. not going to remember those things if you learned them in a panic. 
Right. And this has been studied. Like there are studies oh, yeah, that yeah, show yeah. how kids learn and how they actually retain information. This is exactly how I feel about MVP. Minimum right. and viable in yeah. if you if you boil them down, the thing that's hard to argue about is that they are about learning. That's hard oh, yeah. to argue about. Yeah. You can argue it because it's it's uh, minimum viable products like saying like is uh, is akin to saying have faith um right. <laughs> so uh so, so you that's know, what it's makes funny. it challenging I, I think um so that's a really great point because i think in our initial chat about this um what we didn't do in that episode we didn't talk about the underlying cause for the reason why people ignore you know what what an mvp really is yeah and i think that's the great thing about what we're talking about now because we're actually exploring the underlying um the underlying issues there and i find that extremely interesting that um that analogy is actually a perfect one i think for this because you're right an mvp is not really about building a thing at the end of the day it's about learning what worked so that the next version of it can be better and you cannot do that in a panic mode. You can only do that if you are focused on getting it right, you know, which is the, the urgency that we're talking about. The idea of uh, treating the MVP as a learning experience, right? As, yeah. a, as an experiment. That is, I think, what most people tend to ignore when they think about an MVP. They're just thinking, what's the quickest way for me to get this thing done? What's the fastest way for me to get this thing shipped out, right? And um, obviously a, uh, an MVP will be, a true MVP will be smaller than a full featured product. So in essence, it will be faster to release, but the end goal should not be what's the, f- what's the fastest way for me to get something shipped? It should be what is you know the smallest thing that I can build so that the next version can be even better and I can learn uh, what is what is really what doesn't what what is better? You know, um, I think yeah. that's an interesting and I really love that analogy, Derek. That's brilliant. Sometimes You're I brilliant. bring it. Sometimes I bring it. Sometimes um, you brought it. Sometimes done I done brought, brought it. it. Um, so when when we're talking about the MVP, the uh, what it is, what it isn't, all this stuff, a lot of times people who've studied it themselves or, or had a lot of, uh, put a lot of thought into it will immediately start tuning out people who have their own definitions of MVP. And, and mm. it's because it's become sort of a religious argument. So uh, when I yeah. think of MVP, I think of all the different things I've read about it, the different people I've read, the different times I've tried to implement it, the different experiences I've had, and when you talk about it, you think about the experiences you've had and the things that you've gone through, similar to religion, um, how we, when we talk about it, we think about like the, the groups we've been a part of and things like that. Right. So it's, um, it's become kind of challenging to discuss, but when we focus on the learning, the thing it's hard to argue about, we both, know, we both agree that we want to learn as much as we can, as fast as we can. Hard to argue about. Right. Let's, work, let's work toward that goal and then come to a, come to a, a, a solution that gets us there. And it's, it's, it's sort of like always having, with the people that you work with anyway, always having a thing that's 
easy, I mean, hard to argue about to have to have your as your guiding light um, so that you can collaborate around the things that you do argue about, but still have this central vision that you focus on, uh, especially around, uh, you know, building your products. Right. I just that's what so, popped in my head. Yeah, so I love that. Okay, so in this uh, episode, then our theme here really is not necessarily um, how to build the right MVP. This idea that we're discussing today is really how to conceptualize MVP correctly. And I think what we the reason why we wanted to redo this episode is because the last time, you know, like I said, we we didn't talk about the underlying reasons why people build the wrong thing. And so when you conceptualize it correctly, you'll probably end up building the right thing. If you really understand the idea that an MVP is an experiment, um, if you fail, that's really good because you end up learning why it, why it failed and what the proper um, approach should have been. So you can iterate, you can fix it. And the key thing here, tying this back to urgency versus panic is, you cannot fail when you're in a panic because the stakes are so high, right? Right. And so, you know, sometimes maybe that's impossible to avoid, but for the most part, you, you, you probably can do something well before you are in panic mode, you know, before your competitors are about to, you know, beat you in the marketplace, before your company's about to go bankrupt, uh, before, you know, you're, you miss the boat in the market or whatever it is, you know, you probably had a chance at some point to take a sense of urgency and approach an MVP correctly so that you can fail. And I think that might be the thing that we're thinking of here in our past experience where people approach MVP the wrong way. Um, one, you know, they didn't think about what MVP really means, minimum for them versus minimum for users. But even then, they didn't take the idea of, of MVP as an experiment, MVP as, um, you know, the idea that we might trash this code in six months, but we'll, we'll, we'll um, get a whole lot of learnings out of that code. So it's not throwaway code. It is um, useful code that we're not using anymore. We learned a thing from it, and then we will change it, and we'll have something new that works better, you know. Um, but if you're in that sense of panic, you can't throw away the code because you don't have time to do it because you have to build the next version of it or you have to new, add a build new feature onto it without fixing the first set of features that were wrong or something. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I think that's uh, the, the biggest, my biggest takeaway from this idea and, and this sort of, um, this, this new idea that we had. The, the, there are ways to approach MVP and it's important to approach it um, with that sense of urgency so you can learn. And treat, as a, treat it as an experiment more than just the first version of your application, I guess. Yeah, and, and you may you may get feedback from your uh, your team or, or people that are um, you're, you're building the software for, and they they may see your learning as a wasteful activity. They may say you're mm-hmm. wasting time, you're wasting money, right? Doing this learning you're trying to do, doing this experimentation. If the the idea is to understand the context of the domain that you're building the software for or the thing for i mean if you're thinking outside of software there are many industries that you know if you don't try to learn about the industry before you go build the the thing you're trying to build whether it's a building or a car or whatever you're gonna build an incredibly incorrect thing so right fight back if someone tells you that you're learning is not valuable to the long-term 
success of whatever it is you're building. And software is a young industry, and so you're going to get more feedback about that than not because there aren't many, there aren't many like uh, uh, formal uh, books written on right. the absolute best way to build this stuff. So, uh, you know, uh, but we do know we need to learn because software is incredibly dynamic. Um, okay, so yeah. If so that's, that's the case, and that you, what you just said, I feel like maybe is also one of these kind of loaded terms, fight back, right? It's much easier to say fight back than it actually is to do it. Right, so, that's true. what would we say to maybe people at the lower levels of their organization who are getting those things from their VPs up above them or the stakeholders that are saying, I don't want you building throwaway code. Um, that's throwaway code. I don't want to do that. If you're going to build throwaway code, you know, we're not going to do it. Um, what do we say to them? How do we do our, do we have some tactics then to quote unquote fight back? Do you have some thoughts about that? Other than making a PowerPoint deck or something, you know, do yeah. you have examples? Yeah. Um, um, I, I don't I know. Would say, what would you say there? So I would say that in those kind of situations, in order to get the best outcome from dealing with, uh, people who have, strong views and opposite of what you're thinking. Speak to them in their language and mm. educate them about why you feel strongly about this. Right. Spend the time and effort to sit with them one-on-one -on -one and discuss why these concepts are so important to you and why you believe strongly. And there's evidence that doing it the way that you intend to do it, meaning learning, building small increments, building things the way, however you feel, whatever your definition of MVP is based off the things you've read and the things you've internalized, have those conversations, make them personal and speak to them in their language. And that is my, that is the only way I've ever seen it be even partially successful in getting those ideas right. across. So to expand on that, when you say speak their language, um, here's my take on that, and I, I, I agree with you completely, and I, I would just add one thing to it. Um, when you say speak their language, um, what I think a lot of times software engineers and designers, designers probably more than software engineers do this, is they see their job as, you know, the creatives, the people just doing the craft, or, you know, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm an artist, um, you know, but what they don't approach their, their position, their job is as a tool to add value to the business or something, right? Or as a tool to make money for shareholders or something like that. They don't see themselves as business people. And a lot of the times the stakeholders and the people above you, they're thinking about that. What is my return on this investment? What is, you know, how much value are you going to get out of this piece of software? Things like that. Is it worth the money to do this or that? Right? right. And I think personally, a lot of times like designers, especially UX designers, don't think in terms of being like a business person as much as they should. And in order to speak their language, you've got to understand where they're coming from. And a lot of times I think as UX designers, we don't empathize with our stakeholders like we empathize with our users. And in order to really be effective as a designer as a lead on the software team or something like that, you've got to empathize with your stakeholders so that you can speak their language, right? You have to understand where they're coming from. You have to understand their pain points and you have to understand their needs because at the end of the day, it might be that 
you know, what you're trying to do is more than they can afford or is more than they're willing to spend. Um, and so, you know, you, you can't just say, well, this is the minimum viable product and this thing isn't viable. So we have to build more, whatever the, the MVP ends up looking like. Um, and so in order to, like you said, um, sell them on it and fight back, you've got to understand where they're coming from so that you can take what you think is, pro- is appropriate and translate it into the way they would understand it so that they understand what you're, on, what you're trying to say. Instead of just, you know, being, um, you know, combative in an email and sending a long email or, or whatever it is, you know what I'm saying? Um, I think that's the other thing I would add onto that is you've got to empathize with them so that you can speak their language and change their perspective. That's a great That's really point. the only way. That's yeah. a great I think point. that's the only way to do it. And, and it's funny because when you, when you talk about empathy, um, I started thinking about it. And when I've been successful in dealing with this, yes, I've had, uh, I spent time one-on-one, but it, but it wasn't, when I've been successful, it wasn't me pushing ideas on them, these people. Mm-hmm. It was 90% listening to their ideas and 10% me asking questions clarifying their ideas and in the questions that I asked I guided the conversation toward them thinking differently about the way they wanted to go about the problem Mm -hmm. this is not coercive this is simply encouraging them to think differently about the problem the way you would hope someone would do with you it's sort of like it's sort of like being treated like you want to be treated so empathy, it plays a part in that because I, you would not go into a situation and, and, and want to listen without empathy. So that's a very good point, Jeremy. I, li- I like that you, you stated it that way. Yeah. So one of the things that's actually what you're talking about is, is, is really like a UX principle. Um, there's um, I can't, I gotta, I'm going to have to look this up. I know she knows this as a UX designer, but this idea of just asking why like five times or whatever the number is, but they say, well, I need this thing. And you say, well, why? They say, well, because I have to do this other thing. And you say, well, why do you have to do that other thing? And they say, well, because I blah, 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 blah. And then you're like, well, why do you have to do that? And then you get to like the real root of the problem, which may not be the thing that they ever asked. Like, I need this button. And you say, why? Uh, because they, people need to be able to click a thing. And you're like, well, why do they have to click that thing? So Because I have to sell this other thing. And why do you have to sell that thing? Well, because I have to make money. And you're like, well, maybe you don't have to sell that thing. Maybe you could sell another thing. You know what I mean? So you keep asking these questions why and you get down to the end of root of the thing. And the trick really is to you know, not ask why in a combative manner. But just like you said, just keep asking questions and let them explain themselves over and over again. And eventually um, they'll either – you'll get to the thing and say, oh, OK, well, that makes a lot of sense. Or you, you might even get to the point where you say um, – so do you like, or, or you'll, they'll get to the point where they say, well, yeah, I don't know, you know why I thought that, you know? So, uh, well, why do you do that? I don't know. That's a good question. I never thought about that. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's actually a technique that we use as UX designers to, to kind of get to the root of a lot of these problems. And I think that's a, you know, it helps, it helps those stakeholders, uh, come to the conclusion themselves because, you know, we talked about this in previous episodes, nobody likes to be told what to do. So when, when they come up with that idea, like quote unquote, on their own, and, or you help them come with it on their own, um, they're much more likely to go with that idea because uh, nobody told them to do it specifically, you know? Yeah. Which is interesting. Humans are funny like that, I guess. Humans are weird. I had a, uh, I had a thought about, so that's the five whys I think you're talking about. Is that um, yeah, five whys? Yeah, it's like five. I think you had, yeah, you nailed it, five whys. So like uh, I, I just had to remember this from a while back because I put some thought into it 
because I found it was funny. I was like, how do you know how many Ys to go back? And I read about it, and it turns out that you go back as many Ys as it takes before the answer to the question requires, like, the solution to the problem. So, like, you'll say, my tire popped. Why did your tire pop? Well, uh, I hit a nail. Well, why was the nail there? Well, there was construction. Well, why was there construction? Well, because we need buildings. Well, why do we need buildings? Well, because we need somewhere to live. Why do we need somewhere to live? So it's like you go back until you need to be God to fix the problem. If you have to be God to fix the problem, you go one step back. Mm. Um, and it's like, uh, and then you can kind of you can kind of look at the tree of the wise and determine like where your your product fits in. Um, and I thought that was kind of funny because like at some point it's like because the sun comes up every day. And you, well, I, I, what am I going to, I can't, you know, like, am I going like, to well, put a shade up? Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I can't shade the whole world. Dyson sphere. It's good. A good Star Trek episode. But in any case, uh, that's, that's an interesting concept that, uh, that five wise. I love it. So I think uh, to sum this up then, I guess, Derek, we're, um, seems like we're approaching the end here. We got to understand what minimum and what viable really means. And we have to approach our product with a sense of urgency in order to figure those things out. We cannot approach it with a sense of panic. We can't wait till the last minute to try to figure those things out because if we wait till the last minute, we'll probably screw something up. Um, and so at the end of the day, we've got to understand the, what those words really mean for our users um, because again, MVP is for the users. It is not for us as a software team, as a product team. Um, and so, uh, understanding what MVP really means for us. Uh, and then, you know, like you said, empathizing with stakeholders, if they don't agree with you, if you have tr problems, um, with them, um, speak their language. I think you summed that up pretty good. Speak their language, talk to them in words that they use, use their vocabulary. Don't try to use different vocabulary. Um, yeah. don't try to sound like a pretentious, uh, UX designer using big buzzwords. If they don't know what those mean, it's not going to do any good. It's going to make you look like a jerk. Um, so those, those are, that was a really great point though. I like, I love that. Like speak their language, speak the language. I like that. Um, what else we got, Derek? Is that well, it? Well, one, one more thing. The thing is, Derek's got one more the thing. The big, I got one more thing. One more thing. So, um, so be careful about people telling you what words mean. Mm. People putting the, uh, meaning of words in your head. We told you that minimum and viable have a basis in the concept of learning. I want you to question that. I want you to leave this podcast, sit down and say, do those two dummies really, are they right? Does it really mean learning? Does it mean mm. learning to me in my context? Deep thinking about your environment is, and what these words mean for you and how you can go accomplish things uh, in your environment will make you better by far than any laid out recipe we were to give you on a podcast. Yeah. That is my ending advice, I guess. That's a good, that's a good bit of a, so don't, so basically uh, if I could sum it up uh, or um, say it back so that I understand it, um, don't approach it with this sense of gospel, like MVP is gospel, but approach it and it, with your own sense of uh, wonderment and um, learning and, and explore 
for yourself, don't take someone else's word for it. Beautiful. Beautiful way to put it. I love it. it. Derek, that's beautiful. Hey. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna I should print that out. Put that on a on a poster. We'll sell them on the retrotimepodcast.com website. <laughs> that's a good I love idea. it. We'll make some cash. A t-shirt. Uh, all yeah. this stuff. We might need to make some extra yeah. money soon. That's, that's make true. T-shirts. That's true. We're gonna need um, to make t-shirts. You had a t-shirt <laughs> business, so we should be good. I did. Um, oh. I we could use uh, we could use our website still up and running. There you go. I don't even want to look at that code. Oof. Like, <laughs> that was like almost ten years ago, man. That's gotta right. be a little too minimal. It's awful. A little too, too, uh, too something. It was too something. I tell you that. Yeah, you're right. Um, all right. So, God, damn dog's barking again, man. He's. We have a possum living under our house, um, or something, some kind of animal, and he just like goes nuts, like just like barking, like right under our bedroom, because oh, there's no. like something under the back part of our house where our bedroom is, and I'm in the bedroom right now, and he's um, he's uh, barking his little head off outside, and that's all right. I don't mind. Um, I. Uh, I turned off the sound machine this time, Derek. Well done. <laughs> last time, uh, there was a little bit of hiss last time. And it, it, I, I realized this morning that I had the white noise machine on while we recorded the last I thought it was the podcast. AC or something, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, he just... No, I mean, it I, was like literally a white noise machine, that just the worst thing to dude. have on in the background during a podcast. Well, I'm excited to mix this one then. This is exciting for me. Yeah, it should be a lot better this time. <laughs> um, so, all right, guys, listen, um, I, I, I think... Um, I think this is a good episode, Derek. I dig this one. This is a good one. I'm glad we decided not to just rehash the old episode. Yeah. Um, for everybody that was listening, um, we will post our original MVP episode that we did. We recorded that last year, Derek. Do you remember that? Oh, that was in damn, 2019, man. I think. It was uh, December last year. Um, so that thing's pretty old. The, the microphone is terrible. It sounds awful, but it's Love all it. good. Um, and our Minimum Bible podcast. I think we're getting better every time. It had spirit. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, so we'll post that as a retro bite, so you can check that out and maybe listen to that. Uh, I guess I should have. There's no, there's no good to say that. At the hey end guys, of listen to that first. <laughs> after you've listened to this, okay? Don't screw it up. Oh man. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, maybe we'll. Um, I'll make. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, all right. So uh, retrotimepodcast.com. Um, check us out. We'd love to hear your feedback, uh, especially on this MVP episode. Want to know. Um, what you guys think? I'd love to hear your comments. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash retro time podcast. We got twitter.com slash retro time pod. And uh, we're available wherever you, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, like or subscribe. It really does help, Derek. It does. Thank it you. It does. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. All right. Well, next time, um, until next time, we'll, uh, we'll holler at you guys later, I guess. All right. Take it easy. All right. See ya. A little too minimal.